Welcome to the Altruistic Traveller podcast, interviews with influential changemakers from around the world. That recycling is no longer sufficient to, to deal with these. That type of volunteering actually is proving to be more harmful. Trying to elevate poverty. I mean, they didn't see me that way. They see me as a human being, someone who needs help. Be inspired, educated and moved by global initiatives making this world a better place. For more stories and resources, please visit thealtruistictraveler.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're talking about refugee and asylum seeker rights here in Australia. And I have a special guest, Sarah Dale, who is the Centre Director and Principal Solicitor for RACS, which is Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Australia. Um, Sarah has spent a number of years working with people seeking asylum and refugees, including children that had been detained in Australia's offshore detention centres. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Bianca. Um, let's start with talking about RACS and the work that you do. So you offer legal advice to people seeking asylum and refugees. Um, tell us a little bit about the organisation and what it does. Sure. So RACS has been around for 30 years. Um, we're a community legal centre that's dedicated to assisting people seeking asylum and refugees here in Australia. Our focus is assisting people to make that application for protection once they are here in Australia, but we can also assist people who have that refugee status or who are from a refugee background to apply to bring their families to reunite with them here in Australia. We have lots of different programs at RACS focusing on different groups. So, for example, we have a Women at Risk service, which we partner with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Parramatta. That's a women-only space to support women escaping violence. We also have programs dedicated to stateless babies born in Australia to apply for citizenship. As I said, we also have the Family Reunion Program. We assist people that have been offshore uh, with making sure that they're accessing the medical care that they need once they're here in Australia. Uh, we assist people in detention. Basically, we assist anyone, no matter how or when you arrived in Australia. If you've fled some form of persecution and you're asking for Australia's protection, we're a service here to support you. Nice. And um, I want to sort of touch on a brief history of what it is has been like for people seeking asylum in Australia. Um, I know prior to, and correct me if I'm wrong, 2013, it was a lot easier and then it got quite hard with the laws that came through. So in your experience, you've been at RACS um, for many years now. Has What has changed in terms of um, the legal requirements and, and what is the hurdles for people seeking asylum in Australia? So for years prior to 2014, Australia relied upon the Refugees Convention to determine who should be owed protection. In 2014, the law changed. Australia established its own definition, a much higher bar for who indeed should be recognised as a refugee in our country. A really basic example of this is that you now need to demonstrate that you fear that persecution in every corner of the land in which you have fled from. So the mountains of Afghanistan, for example, you need to prove that you're as, as much risk uh, in a regional area of Afghanistan as you might be 
in a city and that's one real distinguishing feature that's very uh, only happens in the Australian legislation as opposed to other legislations or as opposed to the Refugees Convention. We also changed the way we process people. So prior to 2012-2013, whether you arrived in Australia by plane or by boat, you were treated the same. You went through the same process. And if you were recognised as a refugee, you were given the same visa, which is a permanent protection visa. In 2012, there was a policy that was implemented, uh, which basically meant that people that arrived in Australia by boat had to wait for the minister to lift a bar, preventing them from making an application. What we saw then was a change of government uh, and the current government came into power and they took that one step further, saying not only will we make you wait, uh, we will also only be giving people temporary visas who arrived in Australia by boat. They also implemented what's known as the fast track processing system, which basically means that if the Department of Home Affairs don't accept that you need protection in Australia, then you would ordinarily have access to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the AAT, which is a fresh assessment of your claims. For those who arrived in Australia by boat, they can only access the Immigration Assessment Authority, which is an on-the-papers assessment. You don't get fresh eyes, you don't get to put uh, more information forward unless you have exceptional grounds to do so. You don't get interviewed. Uh, you don't get to meet that decision maker or indeed even speak to them. Uh, everything is on the papers. So a system which basically disadvantaged people that arrived in Australia by boat was implemented. And that's the system that we're working in today. And I can uh, sort of understand how, given these situations, there is such an import, importance for legal advice and legal work. So where that's where RACS comes in. Um, how important is it for these people to have access to this? I mean, first of all, I'm sure that there are language barriers. Second of all, even somebody like me wouldn't begin to understand the law system. It's really complicated. Uh, as you said, I've been at RACS for a little while now. Uh, I joined RACS in 2013, but worked with people seeking asylum and refugees prior to joining RACS. So I've been in this system for a long time. Uh, this is the only area of law I focus on and every day there's something new that I discover and another loophole, another nuance. It's incredibly complex. Uh, it intersects not only with law, but also policy, and then also the politics of the day, as well as country information, news reports, media reports. Uh, in assessing a person's refugee claim, all of those things uh, intersect. So it's an incredibly complex process. Uh, it's also very onerous on the applicant. I mean, a very simple question is, you need to identify the tr your travel history uh, for, for most people their whole lives. Now, I am a privileged person with a passport that has had the ability to travel throughout my life. Uh, and if I was asked to document the date in which I crossed this border and that border, I would struggle to do that without a passport that's been stamped. So it is, uh, it is a very difficult process. It is a very onerous process. Uh, and it's also one in which there are lots of 
you know, language that is particularly difficult to comprehend uh, as a layperson. Um, you know, one of the things that we see so often is people asked, you know, why are you here? Why did you come to Australia? And often a response is, well, for a better life, uh, not knowing that they need to explain that what they what they fled is persecution, violence, discrimination. But the question asking, you know, what what do you want here? What are you seeking here? Um, the answer naturally is a better life, despite the fact that there is all this history that they need to articulate in order to be recognised as a refugee. As I said before, the IAA or the Immigration Assessment Authority is completely on the papers. Uh, you can make a submission. It has to be no longer than five pages. There's font requirements, page size requirements. Uh, there's requirements as to how you can provide country information. So it's an, a system obviously tailored to being assisted by a lawyer um, to first even get your head around what's required of you. But at the same time, a system where lawyers have been stripped away uh, previous to this government, legal services for people seeking asylum were funded by the federal government. Um, that is no longer the case, despite the fact they have established a more legalistic process for very vulnerable people. Yeah, wow. And I, I can imagine that during this time in particular um, with COVID and everything like that, there are quite a lot more vulnerable people. I want to sort of talk about what the impact of COVID has had on Australia's refugee and asylum seeker population. So COVID-19 affected people seeking asylum and refugees in Australia in the exact same way that it affected the rest of our community. They uh, they're required to lock down, they're required to follow the laws. Um, but unfortunately, the impact of what we're seeing throughout Australia is affecting that community tenfold. Um, you know, the, many of the people that we work with were working in the industries that were first to close. They're working in hospitality industries, they're working in factories, they're working as Uber drivers. These are all the things that first came to a halt. Um, a lot of the people we work with, given the temporary nature of their visa, are in casual employment situations, which we also have seen now that there was many, many people in these employment situations that are not permanent um, and therefore have been adversely affected at this time. Despite this, despite us knowing all of this, people seeking asylum are not eligible for any federal government support uh, due to COVID-19. Some refugees that have been recognised are eligible for some special benefit through Centrelink, um, but those that arrived in Australia by boat, despite being in our community for eight years, despite being recognised as refugees, are not eligible for JobKeeper. I've had a number of conversations with employers that have called my service saying, are you kidding? Like, I've, I have 20 guys that are working at my mechanic shop and you're telling me I can only support 19 of those people. I can't support the one guy that's been working for me for six years because of his visa type. And we have to explain, yes, unfortunately, the politics of the day is that there is no inclination to give any helping hand to those that arrived in Australia by boat. But most tragically, as I said, it's those people that are seeking asylum, that are in the process, that have met, most of them have what's known as a bridging visa. They're not eligible for any funded 
support by the federal government. The states are stepping in where they can, but ultimately we have a community that is facing extreme destitution, homelessness, uh, having to decide, do I buy groceries or do I put credit on my phone so I can call my lawyer and my process can continue? Uh, it's incredibly dire and, um, you know, even myself, I'm not living that. I'm not wondering whether the roof over my head is going to still be here tomorrow. But talking to you now, I still get chills because I just cannot comprehend the number of people in our community that have been left behind. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast because this is a real situation that we are dealing with in Australia. And I'll just share a small story. So a couple of months back, um, a, a person reached out to me through Instagram because I had uh, created a post about where it's possible for homeless people to access food in Sydney. And um, I just got a WhatsApp message and it was somebody saying, hi, how are you? And I sort of said, who is this? You know, I don't have this number in my phone. He said, my name is Milad and I'm a refugee uh, and I currently um, am struggling to find food. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was, I saw your Instagram post and I was wondering if you could help me. So I sort of looked around. A lot of the places were closed on a Sunday and he was just sort of up in, uh, in central Sydney. And I, I said, look, I'll come and meet you. I worked and sort of worked in refugee advocation for a long time. And I, I knew that this is a real situation for people. So I met him and we hung out, we had lunch and he shared his story. He'd been here for eight years. Um, he was in the middle of, he had actually worked with you to apply for a visa, which went through. And then I think because you have to keep reapplying, is that correct? That's right. So for those people that arrived in Australia by boat, uh, those temporary visas, you need to reapply before they expire in order to demonstrate that you still need Australia's protection. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because I just, I couldn't really understand because I guess from, you know, and potentially a lot of the wider public, you just think, how does this happen? Like we, we have a country that really supports people. We have a great community, but I just wanted to highlight that it does happen. It's so easy to fall through the cracks. If you're waiting for the visa application, you can't get a job because one, you might not even be eligible. Two, you don't have the experience. People look for experience. Three, like you said, hospitality industries are being closed down. And, and you know, to look at another individual and sort of see that this person isn't able to access food or has to choose, like you said, between food or credit on their phone, it's just really confronting. And I think, you know, this hidden reality um, that not only happens in Australia, I'm sure many, many places are experiencing this, but I wanted to raise awareness about that because it's a real, uh, it's happening, it's happening in cities, it's happening right now. And, um, you know, his story is just one of many. So COVID, I, like you said, yeah, it has really, really impacted a lot of marginalised communities here in Australia. Um, so I just wanted to kind of move on to how COVID is affecting people in indefinite detention um, at the moment. Yeah, that's a, a really great question and another one that has a tricky answer. 
I mean, we've seen um, health experts, doctors, medical professionals all say detention centres are at a heightened risk of COVID-19. And yet we haven't really seen any change to the detention population. Um, there are many, many people that are in detention right now, particularly those from Manus Island and Nauru that were transferred here for medical reasons um, that remain in the detention network purely due to the minister's decision to keep them there. There's really no justifiable ground that they need to be there. They don't pose the character risks that you hear about. Um, Australia has effectively been in control of them since 2013. We know what they have done every waking minute of every day since July 2013. There is absolutely no reason why these men, women, and I understand there to be some children in that network, um, not necessarily in the closed detention, but potentially in community detention. But my point is that the Australian government knows these people. We know who they are. We know what they've been doing. There's no reason to keep them in detention, particularly during these COVID-19 times when we've heard time and time again the risks um, associated with being in detention. Uh, we've seen recently that Christmas Island has been reopened, a, de a decision that I find completely baffling why we need to open a detention centre far, far away from Australia when we have an available option to minimise the number of people in detention, and that is release them. Um, release them into the community to be with their families. There's been a number of community groups that have stepped up to say, they can live with me, they can be in my home, I'll pay for their food, we as organisations will support them, yet still the minister continues to decline and the question has to be why and to what end. Uh, this has been a constant frustration in Australia that our legal system allows for people to be indefinitely detained. One of the few legal systems in the world that allow for this that doesn't require the court's intervention to continue to hold people. Uh, as, as a lawyer in this space, it's one of the most troubling elements, I think, of our migration law system. Yeah, I mean, it's heartwarming to hear that there are communities that are saying, you know, come come and stay with us. And yet here we are with this policy that isn't getting changed. It's almost just like a, a battle between the right, the righteous and what, what we believe to be wrong in that case. Um, how can... Um, how do you find out about these communities and, and sort of the people that are on on the side of wanting to invite people into their community and to really help these people in need? So for those that want to, you know, offer their services, get involved, get in touch with the organisation you know, even if you don't think it's the right fit. So for example, at RACS, whilst we don't link people up with housing opportunities, we work with the groups that do. So if you know about RACS, contact us and say, hey, this is what I would like to do. And we can make sure you're in touch with the right people. Ultimately, uh, all these organisations, irrespective of how big or small we are, the main thing we want is that the truth to be out there and is that awareness grows. Um, and so the best thing you can be doing for people seeking asylum and refugees right now is having a conversation with your families, having conversations with people that may have a slightly different opinion to you. 
Um, the biggest response that we constantly hear from government is that this is not an issue for the Australian community, that the majority of people in the community do not see this as a priority. Um, the government are winning votes based on detaining people and what we need to show is that votes will be lost unless you start treating all people in our community humanely. Mm. What, what do you see for the um, future with this issue and, you know, what, what are RACs currently focusing on, focusing on uh, at the moment? RACs' focus number one right now is getting people through day to day very honestly. Um, our focus is to make sure people have visas in the community um, because if they have a visa, they're lawful. If they're lawful, they can access Medicare. Um, I, I can't quite comprehend that we're in a public health crisis and yet still we're not affording all people in our community Medicare without legal interventions of making sure they have the relevant visa types that enables them to access that healthcare right now. Uh, so our focus number one is supporting people day to day. Uh, our main goal is that we end up in a world where refugees and people seeking asylum are treated justly and with dignity. Um, and with that means that we're not indefinitely detaining people. With that means we're not forcing people into poverty and destitution. It also means that we're respecting the fact um, of what they have fled uh, and we are giving them the opportunity to start their lives again here in Australia in safety. And in doing that, that also means with their families. Um, we have many people here in Australia that simply by the fact that they arrived in Australia by boat before this law was applied, might I add, that says that because you came to Australia by boat, your application to bring your wife and children to Australia is treated as a lowest priority. Uh, basically, that means that every other visa application in Australia would need to be processed before that person's family even has a chance, which we know is just completely impossible. So we just, we really need to bring light and bring truth to the way that we're treating our community. And I can't imagine like the mental health implications from one being separated from your family like that to just the uncertainty. You know, I think we really also need to acknowledge the, the mental health implications that come from this sort of treatment. I completely agree. I mean, we've seen uh, in COVID-19, we've seen people hysterical by the fact that their family are in lockdown for two weeks. Um, that their family have returned from overseas and they can't greet them at the airport and they need to be at, in hotel quarantine for two weeks. And you can deliver them food packages and you can see them through the window, but that's just not enough. And that's exactly right. It's not enough. We should be able to connect with our loved ones and our families. Uh, why do we only afford that to the most privileged? Why do we not afford that to people that have come here and sought our help? Exactly, a little bit of perspective there. Um, I thank you so much for talking about this. It's um, like I said, it's something that I really, really feel is so important to raise awareness. And I guess I just wanted to finish up by say uh, asking you how people in the community can help. Um, how we can help racks, how we can help the overall situation for these people and even maybe at a policy level, like what can we do to drive change in, um, in and around this issue? 
so so firstly unfortunately this isn't is a matter of politics uh, it's a matter of i'm happy to go and meet with every politician i can and say this is a problem but the response that i often receive was well it's not a concern for my electorate so what we need to do is people to raise this with their local members to say i am in your electorate and this is a concern for me that's the first way that we bring that political and that policy shift in terms of supporting organisations like RACS, as I said, we were once uh, funded federally by the government. We now don't get any of that federal government funding. Uh, we went from being 100% funded to nil uh, and, you know, starting that process of, you know, fundraising money in order to keep our organisation functioning um, is, is something that we, is a world that we now exist in. So. Um, we appreciate that right now there are lots of people that are in very difficult financial situations. And so we know that asking for money and financial support in that regard isn't possible for everyone. But what you can do is you can share our posts on Facebook. You can give us a like. Um, you have no idea what a big difference a simple like makes. Um, a little share on Facebook makes a big difference too because you're reaching out to your networks and then their networks' networks. And the more we can spread the word and build some momentum around supporting people that are our neighbours, that are at school with our kids, um, that are serving our coffees, that are working in our aged care facilities, um, the more we can do for them right now will make this, this community a much, much better one. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And on behalf of myself and the community, thank you so much for you and your team and all the work that you do to help these people. Uh, for anyone watching and listening, I'll put the information in the bio. Um, this will be up on all podcast platforms and YouTube. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's so great. Thanks so much. You. you too. Take care. Bye. Thank you for tuning into that episode. I hope Sarah's insights and knowledge gave you a little bit more understanding about the complexities that asylum seekers and refugees face here in Australia. This cause has been very close to my heart for many years and so I'll leave information in the comments about how you can support RACS and the work that they do and follow them for up-to-date information about supporting the refugee crisis here in Australia and around the world. Next week, I am talking with the Program and Communications Manager for Planetera, which is the world's leading nonprofit using community tourism to reduce poverty. Uh, we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on Planetera's partners around the globe who had previously been using tourism as a form of sustainable development and we go into how these communities have been impacted and also how Planetera's strategy is continuing to empower these communities uh, during this pandemic and beyond. So great conversation there with Planetera. Stay tuned and I hope that you are having a wonderful day or evening wherever you are in the world. Speak with you soon.